0: You might know him as Meat Watcher on the Livestock Leaders podcast, an agricultural market analyst with a love of data and charts to help support the broader agricultural sector and more specifically, the livestock industry. Welcome, Matt. How are you going? Good.
1: Thanks, Millie. Thanks for having me on. Very exciting.
0: Thanks for joining us. We are recording after the result over the weekend that Anthony Albanese, leader of the Labor Party, is set to be the next Prime Minister of Australia. Now, I don't think that we've been alone in the last few weeks uh, observing what's been going on in the federal election um, with great interest, so talk us through that. Where is your head currently at with that final result that we've just been told?
1: look it's an interesting development i think early days yet because we haven't seen the structure of the cabinet and and who's going to be the agricultural minister um so that'll be the first step to see who it is and hopefully someone that's um you know going to be receptive to listening to this sector including the live export sector just um given given some of the discussion around uh, leading into the election you know there was a bit of a toing and froing and not very clear messaging about what's going to be happening with regards to live sheep exports so Hopefully, whoever the incumbent uh, new, new minister for ag is, is going to be someone that's going to be prepared to listen to the industry uh, more broadly in terms of agriculture, but also listen more specifically to the participants in the live export space to, um, to make sure they're on top of um, how important the industry is to us.
0: Yeah, and I think we're not alone in saying that it has been confusing with the backflips and everything like that, what their stance actually is, and, and we won't know until all of that unfolds what would you know a ban or a, a phase out mean for our markets like i know that different countries re- require our exports fanning the export of some of these commodities on some really exasperated already tough supply chains what would it mean
1: uh if you're talking more broadly so a ban on all live exports i'm assuming you're meaning the million cattle as well as sheep I should I should stress that's not the policy of even the ALP to ban live cattle. Um, But, yeah, I mean, from a from a live cattle perspective, a ban to the sector would be disastrous for a country like Indonesia. They're heavily reliant on Australian products um, for their food security. Um, And also, you know, the, the value chain over there, like they've been making inroads in terms of putting in Uh, feedlots within Indonesia to employ the local community there as well. So it would be a a huge blow, not just to the food security, but to the economy of a a country like Indonesia. That's becoming, uh, well, they're they're already an important trade partner in a lot of areas, but with the free trade agreement we've signed with them last year, they're they're becoming increasingly important in that space too. So uh, it wouldn't be a good look, I don't think, for Australia to be um, impacting upon both their food security and their economic stability in some of those regional areas of Indonesia.
0: Yeah, that's it. I think is a is a really good example that we can um, touch on with um, these, like you're obviously an expert in these areas and um, markets worldwide. It's not when we say live export, we're not just supporting like the agricultural supply chain, is it? Can you talk to us about some of those interrelationships and the um, different market effects?
1: Say, for arguments sake, you know, to bring in uh, or, to, or to adjust, um, you know, a protocol in a certain field or, or you know, that there's always a, a responsive thing you've got to do back uh, to assist that country. To, so, so, say, for arguments like into Vietnam, if we were to try and seek, um, you know, alterations to a trade policy, so the Vietnamese uh, delegate would often request back. You know, that we give them something in return. So and, and, and that can sometimes be within, you know, an agricultural commodity where there's, you know, kind of a, a give and take, but it can also cross over to, you know, we'll allow some kind of a technological product in or, or, or you know, give a preferential tariff arrangement to another um, you know, non-agricultural manufactured item. in in exchange for a concession on an agricultural-based one. So there's a lot of that negotiation that goes on, obviously, when those agreements are being formulated. Um, And, and yeah, for for sure, it's not just about um, trade in agricultural products, it's trade across the board. Uh, When you go more broadly, I think I touched on it there with regards to Indonesia that... The you know the cattle that we supply into Indonesia goes into an Indonesian feedlot, and you know there's a lot of employment in that aspect. But then they go through to processing domestically as well, which also employs a lot of Indonesians all the way along that supply chain. And it's not a dissimilar factor when you look at um, the live sheep, say, that go into countries like Q8. There's been a lot of money invested from the Q80 side into you know up, upgrading their processing capacity and their their handling capacity um, for the sheep that go there as well. And again, that's you know that's um, not just the investment, but it's also part of their, uh, you know, food security measures, They, the, the consumer in those end destinations want to have access to the live animal. I mean, of course, they can also be interested in taking our chilled and frozen product. But, um, you know, there, there are a range of reasons, both kind of economic, social, um, religious to a degree as well, why countries have a preference for live animals. And I think it's, you know, for... for People coming from a you know Western background like Australia to to try and kind of impose upon them our wishes. If if you talk about you know the the, the phase for you know the case for banning it, um, it's a bit I think presumptuous and a little bit kind of moralistic to to have that view without understanding the complexity of how the industry operates in those countries, you know, and how important they are also for those um, destination countries as much as it's in, as is also important for a state like WA. for the the live sheep um example
0: yeah and i think that provides some really great context into where australia sits in terms of yeah not only live export but how that interrelates with other market commodities as well matt do you have any ideas on how we can work with this government to make sure that they understand our current operating environment
1: um i think more, more, more broadly, I guess, when you extend beyond kind of just the live export perspective, but I think it, you know, having um open communication and, and making, you know, um, making sure that there's not just one particular, you know, counterparty within the government that you're liaising with, but you've got to have, I think, multiple points of contact across, you know, across that kind of political sector, whether it's in. in terms of discussions with advisors as well, not just kind of engage with one particular minister. I think we need to, you know, people within the sector that are representatives of the sector in terms of agriculture, I think need to be always on the lookout to to be able to um, kind of establish and maintain networks Whether it's those that are in government, those that are in behind the scenes advising government in terms of the policy side of of, of the equation, or indeed you know now with the LNP moving into an opposition uh, situation, I think we still need to maintain a dialogue with 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 all parties concerned, whether they're whether they're in the position of making the decisions now or whether they're going to be in that position into the future. I think it should be something we're it's always in the mind of representatives of 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 agriculture and livestock and live ex or whatever we all should be. Trying to foster um, good working relationships with anyone that's a you know a stakeholder or a participant within this field, and particularly those that are in the position to be making a decision uh, at some stage, either whether it's uh, current decisions or or decisions into the future. You know, depending upon you know we we know that we're going to get. Um, adjustment to uh, the politi- who is, who's in charge politically through time. We're always going to get an ebb and flow between um, political parties, uh, so we just need to make sure that um, we're always kind of having that point of contact all the way through, I think.
0: Yeah, do you think we're getting better at that as, as in agriculture?
1: Uh, look, I think so. I mean, you know, there's, um, there are plenty of representative bodies out there that are that are, you know, kind of advocating for their particular segment of agriculture. And I mean, the livestock leaders is a good example of one in the space that you guys occupy. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that, that that kind of it's not so much the lobbying aspect, but just being able to, um, you know, maintain those very important relationships with with those key participants. I think that um, you know, it, it's 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 fairly well understood. Within within those particular representative groups, that it that needs to be something that's uh, that you can't just kind of turn on and off. It has to be something that's an ongoing uh, dialogue b- between parties.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And, and like you said, like we're not a um. political group whatsoever but it's not just those conversations it's actually making sure that the broader community uh, are gaining access to information that allows them to make a balanced decision and then the flow on effects in the political landscape and even um, with service providers and whatnot as as well and so for everyone's background Matt was a livestock leader when did you attend the workshop Matt must have been in Bendigo um, this time last year
1: yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I mean, I've been an advocate for the industry for a while, but it's, it's hard to recall exactly, but I'm pretty sure it was either last year or the year prior, but it was that Bendigo event, which was which was really good. And, yeah, you make a fantastic point, Millie, that, you know, I was obviously referring to those those that are in a position of power to make you know policy and legislative decisions. But um, you, you, you're absolutely right in saying that it's not just those; it's about also uh, educating the wider community about about the sector. You know, whether it's live export or whether it's agriculture uh, in general. Um, I think there is still a lot of misconceptions amongst certain groups and and people that aren't familiar. And it's, I think the the, the changing dynamic of, of, of urban life is that, you know, if you go back a few generations ago, um, you know, there was a lot of people, I think, that had some exposure to agricultural um, industries because they might have had a cousin that worked, you know, was on a farm or, you know, or, or that, you know, kind of been out there regularly. I think the, the nature of society now is, um, you know, a lot of people that are in an urban setting are quite removed from, from, from those kind of agricultural um, aspects. And, um, and they can go through, you know, the whole of their life if they wish, not really understanding or engaging with it. So it, it, it's imperative for the people that are in the sector to make themselves, or those that are at least in a position to be an advocate or someone in a, in a public kind of setting, to make themselves as available as possible to be able to help to um, educate and, and help people that are not familiar with the sector understand what it does, why we're there, you know, how we do things and, and, and demonstrate all the great things that we do within that sector uh you know to support the broader um, economy and to support the community as well
0: yeah i completely agree and i say that point quite often it's you know the disconnect is for a whole range of reasons and it's no one's fault like i think we're well beyond the um point where we're angry that they're they're disconnected it's a huge opportunity instead to actually engage with them and connect with them one thing that we talk about in agriculture is you know are we talking to an echo chamber and I want to get your thoughts on that like how do we break out of that echo chamber
1: uh look I think that there is a risk there that, that yeah for sure I mean that's not just that would be a criticism you could probably apply to lots of industries and sectors that that um you know there is a there is a kind of um, a tendency to to associate with like minded people and what is what's the phrase birds of a feather flock together type thing, um, so you know that that is a risk and I think sometimes too with with the kind of rise and the popularity of social media that can become even more of a risk particularly when it, when you look at things like um, you know the, the manner in which or how um, some of these uh, apps and social media. Um, platforms how how they do how it directs uh, information to the users is very much based on your previous history of how, how you engage with that platform so there is not just a risk that you're associating yourself with people who are like-minded and similar you know kind of views and backgrounds but then the app itself also tends to kind of feed you the types of stuff that it thinks you're interested in <laughs> whether that's accurate or not and so you, I think there is a real risk um, not just in ag, but you know, more broadly across across community, that that people can become quite siloed in their thinking. Um, you know, so and I, I think the way you combat that again is, um, I think it's got to be around that education and that advocacy role, and also, I guess, from an in, from an internal perspective, uh, I suppose, um, acknowledging that there's a risk of of being in an echo chamber and making conscious efforts to look for divergent opinion or thinking and to actually engage just because someone doesn't necessarily agree with you um you know it's not necessarily a uh, you know then you need to have this kind of you know whether it's an online or a, a direct kind of verbal debate or battle it can just be more about um being curious to understand another person's perspective and you know, if, if, if their views and, and opinions are based on things that potentially are, you know, the, the data or the facts don't necessarily support, that could be an opportunity for an education type scenario. But in some of these aspects, it becomes beyond the data and it becomes down to a view that's a, a moral view to a degree. And when it gets to that area where it's more opinion than, than fact or data... I think I think it's important to one be respectful in your dialogue with people that you have a difference of opinion with or a different moral standing but I, I don't I think you've got to also have the a level of curiosity to and the um, I guess the the uh, willingness to to actually listen to what they've got to say and think about it don't just discount it like you know um, I think people that are um, that are kind of Good thinkers, I think, are people that are open to new ideas, and so I, I, you know, I think you should never be scared to listen to a person and their point of view and a new idea. Um, I think that that's the basis for someone that's um, a thoughtful person, you know, in terms of how they construct and how they approach their own life. And I think, I think, um, you know, anyone should, irrespective of their background, anyone should be as much as possible um, open to new ideas and to engage with people of different, different kind of diverse thinking. I think that that makes for a much better um, understanding of, of of how things work, and and uh, and I think it gives you a, a more rounded kind of sense of who you are and where you fit in the in the broader um, you know social context or or industry you work in or community you live in.
0: Yeah, Matt, I think you've summarised that. So well, that it is um, what we do require to be curious and make the person that we're talking to feel very validated through authentic listening and understanding what perspective they come from to actually have an engaging conversation where you, you can have a, a discussion that leads to an outcome. And when we say curiosity, I think it's also back to that privilege that if, if we do have this knowledge and the ability to have that conversation, it's such a privilege, like I'm sure you get asked questions all the time and it's such a privilege for you to have the, the knowledge that you do in agricultural markets. I think you'd agree that we've probably seen improvements in different things like animal welfare from independent, you know, people from the outside looking in and saying, no, actually that can be done better and doing that in a really constructive way. So I absolutely agree. And at the livestock collective, we use that you know latest research into community sentiment. So, what does the community actually think about not only live export but agriculture more broadly? And what are the the drivers of trust?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, think the the point you make there is crucial. That it's a it's a the methodology has to be forward looking and proactive. We I, I think gone are the days where um, as a sector we can just sit back and not so much hide, but you know. Um, be in a position where we don't want people to be looking over our shoulder or or anything you know, that, like that. That's not the nature of how people what people expect nowadays in terms of the broad community. I think there has to be a level of openness and honesty and and you know, being prepared to say, well, this is you know, and to be to be proud of what you do, but also know the reasons why you do it and you know not to be scared to say, well, you know, this is our industry and this is how we do stuff and 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 this is the real kind of facts because there's enough. Kind of missing When it comes down to the likes of people with an agenda, that you know, whether it's a a broader anti meat agenda or just an anti live export agenda, there is a lot of misinformation within that space. And I think, um, as as advocates of the sector, we have to be combating that and making sure that there's um, you know valid and 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 kind of real. Uh, understanding of what goes on and 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 not to shy away from it, but to kind of um, demonstrate, you know, like I said, all the good things that we do as part of that sector.
0: Yeah, I think you make a really good point there. It's identifying what the, I guess that's the extreme, end of it, how they're communicating, what they're actually communicating about and how we can counteract that in a really effective and constructive way because um, yeah, they can be really loud um, and I'm not sure if you've been following um, especially animal activists and animal extremists over the last few weeks and I think we've probably seen a bit of a, a change in the way they have been communicating, would you agree?
1: Um, I have. I do follow. Like I said, I mean, I, you know, I'm not just kind of saying it um, just for just just for the sake of saying it. I do follow um, people that I, you know, don't necessarily agree with um, in terms of you know, across a range of areas. I think that's a beneficial thing. To, you know, you, like I said before, you've got to go out of your way to to do that. Um, but I think you know, it's it's well worthwhile to do it because it does give you a better, better, broader understanding within yourself um, about. You know what's going on and who you are but um yeah so i do follow though even the extremists um and i have noted um they've got very excited about the um you know the the change of government of course there's there's a there's a view there that um they're going to you know from their perspective they're probably going to see some outcomes that they're much more happier with potentially in the coming months and and years Um, but I, i personally think that's you know i think there's still um some some room to discuss with uh with with, with you know the, the, those legislators that are now going to be in charge i think i think there's still some opportunity to discuss and 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 advocate and demonstrate what's been done over the last few years in terms of changes to the sector and what the data is showing and, and talk from a more factual and scientific point of view and the economic point of view i guess as well in terms of the the, the, the benefit that the sector provides to the to the broader community uh, and and Specifically to the regional um, regional parts of the country that that in some areas rely heavily on 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 aspects of agriculture and and, and the supply chain, um, yeah. But I, I have noted there's been a lot more um, kind of I guess uh, higher frequency of correspondence, and, and there, you know, there's been a, a bit of a push towards trying to lock in. Um, a certain agenda by certain parts of the community that have a, a very strong um, feeling in, in in regards to LiveX and uh, and and even from that perspective, um, the use of animal product more broadly. <laughs> I think they've they've got they've got a, a fairly a fairly um, you know kind of a, a fairly obvious uh, you know kind of group of, of things that they're targeting. You know, which um which is you know it, it's their uh, it's 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 their right to have that to have that point of view. But I do I. I do think they're very much on the fringe when you look at the broader community yeah i agree
0: and i'm really glad that you highlighted the improvements that the live export industry in particular has made in recent years and we've acknowledged that things haven't always been great but we're certainly improving animal welfare and our practices not only in australia but overseas as well to be in a really really strong position and communicating that and being transparent has been part of the success of the livestock collective um, and totally agree with all of your comments on, on the extremists. They have, um, yeah, they, ha- they have their agenda and absolutely they have their their right to have that opinion as well. And what they've done a really fantastic job, um, probably not only in recently, but forever in targeting that part of the population that can be swayed, um, what we call the, the movable middle. And I think agriculture is is just catching up to that, to understand that there is an opportunity for people not connected to the industry to actually become connected um, and have more of, um, I guess, engagement with what we're doing through, you know, authentic storytelling. you mentioned the supply chain there and that's something that I know we've spoken about and it's a big part of the livestock leaders program is that supply chain actually being united is really essential. I think the, the flow and effects in terms of the agricultural supply chains, I don't think they can be underestimated.
1: Not at all. No, I think I think one of the key kind of messages out of the whole um, COVID-based episode and, and and what happened there was you know obviously there was a, a medical uh, you know emergency that was impacting people's health, but it also flowed through to demonstrate just how susceptible parts of the supply chain can be across a whole range of industries, not just agriculture. Um, you know, so I think it you know this kind of whole. Uh, you know, in the last few decades, there's been this real move towards just-in-time kind of inventory management type stuff within certain industries. Um, you know, the reliance on on uh, you know regular foreign labor coming in and out, whether it's four, five, seven or, or backpacker type labor. You know, the, the fact that there's been a, a slow deterioration over time of, of manufacturing within Australia that kind of highlighted some shortfalls. Uh, you know, so and, and and to a degree too, industry. Um, you know even consumers of agricultural goods which are some of the clients we work with they have been um, quite you know historically over time you know and, and probably from an economic perspective rightly so they've been looking towards when they when they look for inputs to what they're creating they look for sometimes the cheapest input to a certain degree of quality but um, the the whole COVID episode and the disruption to the supply chain highlighted to them as well that it, sometimes it's not just about uh, where you can get, you know, you're not balancing out cheapness and quality, it's also balancing out accessibility. Um, and so there's been a real reawakening, I think, in some areas of an understanding that, um, you know, we need to be more focused on, on the supply chain and where we, where we um, obtain our, our, our inputs, particularly our really important inputs like fuel and fertiliser and factors like that, you know, the ones that are crucial across many sectors Um, We need to be a lot more aware of that as a country and as an industry and I think because it does flow into you to a degree it flows into your level of national security for these key important aspects If if we don't kind of pay enough attention to how important they are when we get these disruptions like a COVID or like a conflict like we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment. Um, that has implications for global trade and and, and and how, you know, those sanctions are playing out with, you know, like the likes of Russia or changes to policy like in China with regards to, you know, f- exports of fertiliser or exports of chemical, um, it has a big impact on the country and on, on, on sectors within Australia. So I think, I think there needs, needs to be much more thought put into supply chains and how we go about, um, you know, engaging with supply chains because, um, you know, there's lots of areas in a supply chain that can kind of cause issues uh, as we've seen through COVID, you know?
0: Yeah, I think COVID is a, a perfect example of that and perhaps also gave some Australians maybe the first tiny, tiny taste of what it means um, to not have access to everything that we need straight away. Just touching on what you've what you've just mentioned, there's obviously a lot going on in the world right now. And yeah, like you say, fertilizer prices, grain prices, um, livestock prices, like I think grain prices, Have lifted what eighty dollars a ton. What's what's going to happen? What does the future hold, Matt? What do you think? Uh,
1: Look, in terms of grain price, uh, obviously within Australia, you know we're coming in from. I guess you've got to look at the domestic and the international because they're two, to a degree, they're they're somewhat at the moment competing kind of factors. So this this coming harvest, this next next year, will be the third pretty good harvest we've had in Australia, and obviously the season's fantastic. So. There is a lot of domestic supply out there, but uh, um, yeah, and then that's and that's been one factor you mentioned about the price of grain in the last week or so has gone up eighty dollars a ton, um, and we have seen we ha- we are seeing you know pr- pretty record grain prices in Australia in their own right, but if you actually compare the relative price of grain in Australia to the global price presently the Australian prices are actually at a heavy discount, which is which is quite unusual. Um, at the moment, on average, they're about $140 a tonne under the global price, um, you know, and so that's a significant discount. Um, so, so even though, you know, for the, for the grain consumers in Australia, uh, like the likes so of your pig farms or chicken farms or, or feedlots, um, the beef feedlots, they're, they're paying a high price for the grain historically, but if the prices were reflecting the global price, they'd be paying another... Potentially 150 or even 200 dollars more, because the the normal the normal scenario for grain pricing in Australia on any given year is for Australia to run at a at a premium to the global price of About 50 dollars is the average long term, um, you know. And during during drought, that premium can lift up to you know 100 dollars or so. Um, but yeah, at the moment we're we're at 140 or so discount. So um, you know, the the grain price is a real curious one because um, you know potentially. It could have been a lot worse this year if we had been maybe facing a drought rather than a really good harvest. Um, but that's that aside. If you look, you know, what's been driving a lot of the local price at the moment now has been that that really really strong offshore price dragging the local price up bit by bit. Um, the, the situation presently overseas, we've got you know issues of dryness in North America in Canada. We've got issues of dryness in in France. Uh, you've obviously got the conflict in Ukraine, and that's impacting upon. The amount of grain that can be exported out of both Russia and Ukraine and and they they contribute on any given year about 30 percent of the world's export exportable kind of grain whether it's wheat or barley so um, and that's not to mention you know canolas they're about 20% so you know significant um, significant kind of contributor to global exports um, so there's a lot of supply chain factors in the northern hemisphere that are making um the market quite nervous about supply and that's what's driving these high prices. I don't think uh, that the circumstances are such that we're going to see any real relief in, in, in global pricing for grain um, for the, for the foreseeable next six months at least. And I mean, it's heavily dependent upon what happens in Ukraine and Russia. um, And that conflict doesn't look like it's going to be, you know, stopping anytime soon. So, you know, the, you know, probably, probably, we're looking at reasonably strong prices at least to the next you know northern hemisphere harvest the next time we get a decent harvest in the northern hemisphere which which might be you know 2023 24 rather than next year.
0: Yeah wow Matt there's lots going on. Um, What's happening in India with the wheat?
1: Uh yeah so at one stage there uh when when there was issues around this kind of northern hemisphere supply India did come out and say, because India generally, India tend to be an importer, but they do, they do a net importer, I should say, of of grains. Um, They do occasionally export though as well, so they do sometimes flick between being an importer and exporter. But their their normal natural position more recently has been to be a net importer. Um, So the Indian government did kind of suggest that at one stage they would be looking to try and make up some of that shortfall in the global. Um, market for grains, they were going to look to export some of their some of their stocks that they hold because so they do hold stocks like China holds stocks. Um, but then, about a week after they made that announcement, or fortnight after they made that announcement, they were hit by a pretty significant heatwave event in in parts of the country that are where their grain is being grown, and that caused a significant downgrading of the yields they were expecting for that harvest. So, um, it's meant that in the last fortnight or so, they've they've kind of switched from saying that they were going to. You know, fill some of the gap that was, being, um, that was being created by the loss of Ukraine and Russia, India were going to fill some of that gap, but now they've come around and said, no, actually they've decided that um, they're more likely to be um, retaining their grain internally because of this heatwave event, and so now they're probably not looking to export at all if they can, if they can help it. Um, So they've kind of put a bit what we're calling a soft restriction on they're still allowing for some exports of grain out of India, if it's for food security issues, or if it's for a contract that was existing. Um, But they're, they're trying to limit as much as possible the export of grain going out of the country so that that's what's caused the most recent spike in the global grain price was that was that flip flop that India had from being a, you know, being an exporter to then now saying we're going to try not to export anything.
0: Yeah, well, lots going on, and thanks heaps, Matt, for sharing your your knowledge. You obviously watch all of this so closely, um, as an analyst. So yeah, having your insight is, I'd like your input, I guess, to the actual Australian herd and the the cattle herd and the and the sheep flock because we're actually in rebuilding phases. So it hasn't been that it's a, been a dying trade at all. There's a whole different um, bunch of reasons that we haven't had the numbers that we've all always had. But you've just mentioned the American Drought just before. So, what's their influence? What's that influence going to be on the Australian herd?
1: Uh, yeah. So, America is into their third year of a destocking phase for their herd. So, they've been reducing for the last three years in terms of herd numbers, um, and that's to do with often it's it's not uncommon when we get a La Nina impact in Australia and we get a, a much wetter season like we've seen the last few years. Um, and northern parts of or Northern Hemisphere, particularly America and Canada, they they go to a, a drought phase through. So a, a La Nina in America is more commonly associated associated with drought. Um, so that they have been seeing a reduction in their in their herd through the last three years. Um, it, it's getting to the phase. Like the American cattle cycle is a, is a little bit more stable than the Australian one, and part of the reason for that is that they are much more heavily reliant on, on grain feeding. You know, the the feedlots in America are significant in terms of their turnoff. It's you know, over 90% of, of animals are, are grain-fed over there. Um, so, But then that, that level of, of, of kind of turnoff makes it a bit more of a predictable cycle in terms of supply. So they do tend to go through reasonably predictable phases of growth and, and destocking of, the, of their herds. Um, if you look back historically over the last, say, 100 years or so, they've probably had about, you know, 12 cycles from, from rebuild to destocking. Um, normally, the, the, the destocking phase lasts about five or six years and the rebuild phase lasts about six or seven years, give or take, like if you look at the averages. So we're getting to the stage now with a third year into a, a destocking in America. They've probably got maybe one to two more years left of, of destocking and what generally happens towards the the second half of the destocking phase, so the last two to three years of of destocking in America, that's when supplies start to become a little bit more tight domestically in terms of you know, production and 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 whatnot. So, um, you do tend to see more often than not American um, prices for beef and, and cattle to rise in the last few years of, of their destocking phase. And, and we have seen some of that this year with, with increasing prices. I mean, some of the price impacts have also been because of the disruption to the supply chain, like we spoke about before with COVID and, and, and the disruption to trade and, and concerns around the ability to move stock about. But, but generally speaking, um, you do tend to see an increase to pricing in those last phases of the liquidation in America. So that tends to suggest that, um, into say next year and into the middle of the decade, it's likely we're going to see some reasonably strong kind of because America sets the benchmark for beef pricing to a degree. Um, so we're going to probably see a global environment of, of stronger cattle pricing globally, um, and then that you know that can have. I mean, at the moment Australia because we're in this very strong rebuild phase, and America have been in this strong destocking phase. Um, currently Australian cattle prices compared to the, the global price, we're, we're quite um, highly priced. You know, our, our animals are, are, are running at a premium to American uh, animals if you're looking for like-for-like, for like, so that you know, if you're comparing heavy steers to the equivalent in America, we're sitting at about a 15 to 20% premium, give or take at the moment, whereas normally we sit at about a 35% discount <laughs> to American pricing. Um, and so, you know, we are at a stage where we're, where we're, where we're kind of... Um, uh, I guess if, uh, in a global sense, we're, we're, we're quite expensive for our product presently. Um, if you get to a stage in the next few years where America are going to go through this final stage of liquidation, it's likely their pricing might catch up or overtake ours again, so we go back to a bit of a discount. Um, if, if that coincides with, you know, a switch back to a, a La Nina event, uh, sorry, an La Nina event in Australia, a drier one, then um, we could start to see a bit of price pressure here and that'll bring our pricing back to... You know more normalized levels historically where we're running at that discount again, um, and and if, if, I mean, if, but if that coincides with the Americans going through the final stages of their destocking and starting to begin a rebuild, um, we might see you know a, a revert back to more normalized pricing. Like I said, that our prices on a global basis for cattle become a little bit um, a little bit more cheaper comparatively. And um, and that could be a good thing for our for our kind of export markets and 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 indeed even for you know in, extending into the, to the live cattle trade that at you know at the moment I think it's quite difficult at these high prices to be um, you know shipping animals into into the likes of Indonesia and Vietnam for, for cattle um, you know and and um, you know like you said before we, we have, we've got we've got. The herd's rebuilding here. We're coming off a low base. We've got a lot of um, interest to retain animals on farm and and to rebuild here. So, you know, that's making it difficult for our volumes of exports, whether they're boxed and chilled or whether they're volumes of number of head of live cattle going, Um, you know, there's, there's this kind of supply issues as to why that market's a little bit softer than what it's been in previous years.
0: Yeah, wow. And so what are your projections for the Australian cattle herd rebuild and the Western Australian flock rebuild for sheep for live export? Uh,
1: in terms of, I mean, the, the, the cattle, you know, the anticipation is for, a, we're looking to go back to, you know, the high 28 million head by, you know, 2024, 2025. I don't think we're going to get as high as 30 million head in terms of cattle numbers. Um, you know, I think that there's a, if you look at, um if you look at the normal kind of historical cycle in terms of going from a, a wet season to a dry season, uh, I did some analysis on this just last week, actually just looking at over the last kind of 120 years, how, how frequently has the dry followed the wet and what's the gap been between that? And, and generally speaking, it's somewhere between two to four years after the wet seasons we tend to get. Um, a return back to a, a dry cycle so with that in mind I th- I'm, I'm kind of expecting it's, it's obviously the caveat is that it's very hard to predict the weather out to next week let alone out to two or three years but if you're looking at just that that average cycle it's fair to say that probably by 2024 or 2025 it's quite likely we're going to see at least one really dry season somewhere in there maybe 2026 at a stretch um, and that that could that could kind of Like I said, coincide with the US in a rebuild phase because they could be going into a potentially wetter cycle when we go into a dry cycle. Um, So yeah, I I think we've got the herd rebuilding presently. We've probably got another year and a half to two years, maybe three years tops, to be able to rebuild, and then then I think we might move back to a to a stage where the herd becomes under pressure again. And I'm, I'm. I'm I'm not confident we're going to get above you know 30 million head before we start to come under pressure again. That's why I'm thinking we might top out in those high 28, 28, 29 million head level. Um, in terms of the the West Australian flock uh, for sheep, particularly, I, I do have concern that, that that you know, and and a lot of the concern is around the disruption to the live sheep export trade. So we've seen the the moratorium that's been put in place for that Northern Hemisphere summer, um, you know, the ban for the three months effectively. I think that's been a bit disruptive to the sector. Um, and, you know, with this, with this entry of the of the Labour government coming in, there's there's kind of further uncertainty, I guess, around what is going to happen. Um, you know, obviously I'm I'm optimistic that, that the Labour government will uh, engage and 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 talk to industry and, and find out more before they just go ahead with a with a phase out. They have they have said obviously that their plan is to phase it out, but they haven't given a set time frame. I'm still hopeful that they will um reconsider that phase out and maybe look at all of the factors that have been more recent and maybe change their mind because you know my concern is that you know the 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 moratorium has caused some disruption to the trade and a lot of that disruption's been felt in WA and I I the the reduction in the in the flock in WA I think is is somewhat um there are other factors there of course for that reduction, but I think a lot of it's been around the issues with live export and and the difficulties and and I, I'm I'm concerned that if the sector be continues to become you know difficult to navigate, or indeed if 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 the pathway that the government sets now is that it is going to be phased out. Um, you know, I think that's probably going to continue to see the, the industry in terms of the sheep industry in WA continue to shrink, both in terms of the size of the flock and in terms of the supply chain. Um, and I, I do have concerns, actually, that, um, you know, a, a, a place like WA that's quite geographically isolated, um, that has, you know, a, a smaller population when you contrast it to the eastern seaboard, of course, And so a smaller domestic market, you know, that's part of the reason why the producer in WA heavily relies on the live export of sheep to to kind of, um, you know, um, give them a third option in terms of turnoff. Uh, And without a really robust and strong live export sector there, I do have concerns over time that the the WA sheep industry will, will will go to the way to a degree of what we've seen in Queensland, where the industry contracts to such a point that it almost becomes irrelevant um and that's hopefully i don't annoy any queensland sheep producers in that statement but if you look back to you know the size of the sector in queensland historically it it has significantly um you know reduced in size and it it makes it difficult for um you know for the supply chain to manage when when the industry becomes much much smaller yeah and i think that
0: Phase out is probably very strategically used, and I know I personally get frustrated by it because it doesn't allow any confidence into what that decision making is. Like you said, there's no time frame on it. And obviously, live export provides um, farmers, particularly in Western Australia sheep industry, that market diversity. But I want to ask you, even for those farmers that don't actually export their animals, how is it related to the domestic prices and what does it mean for those interrelationships?
1: Yeah, so I mean, for um, there, there was some analysis done uh, back in 2018 looking at 2018 2019 looking at if there was a if there was a, a sudden ban to the sector so I just you know the point I'd make is that the the, the narrative from the labor party is that there's going to be a, a scheduled phase out which you know if, if they're going to go down that pathway so we're not looking at hopefully a, a quick ban a sudden ban but certainly um, a sudden ban to the to the sector, uh, would have some significant price implications according to the analysis I've, I've undertaken uh, in WA just because of how important that sector is with regards to turnoff, how much of the turnoff goes there. So from memory, that that analysis back in 2018, 2019 was suggesting price falls across the board for, for the sheep producer in WA of between 20 to 35% um, on on the back of a, a fairly sudden ban. And, that, and that's built around the fact that then you would have and over oversupp- you know, the animals that were being sent um, to live export, there's a there's an oversupply of those animals. And and there's a fairly um, you know, there's, a, there's only a handful of processes within WA as in as in domestic processes. So, you know, th- there's only so much that they can actually handle at a time unless you're building more infrastructure to process. And it's not just the you know, the abattoir that you need, it's also the workforce that you need. And we've seen already that there's issues, there was already issues before COVID around securing a workforce within meatworks that are, that are suitable for the for the throughput um, you know we've gone through a phase where the flock and the herd is at low low level so production's lower so the workforce you know processes across the country have been running at below capacity um if we start to see you know increases to herd and flock that's going to require more more workers still to be able to process these animals domestically and we've already had bottlenecks in that space so if you overlay the issues around COVID and and getting four five seven skilled meat workers in that's been problematic. Um, I can't see that we're going to be able to transition quickly, Uh, you know. Particularly in WA, a transition. You know, a lot a of, lot of times people that are against the live export sector say, "Oh, we just we just send it, you know, boxed and chilled and frozen," you know. But it's easier said than done when it, when you, when you're talking about limited processing facilities and difficulty in accessing skilled workforce to be able to process it so you end up with an oversupply of animals that can't go anywhere else and that's going to that's going to pressure the price so so i think if, if you're a producer in the west that's not um not sending live exit you think you're not going to be um impacted you definitely will be uh, from a price perspective um, and like i said you know just the confidence in the sector more broadly too you know that that i think any any kind of deterioration or closure of the live sheep export space will will kind of um also i guess it's a it's a it's a kind of negative against the broader sheep sector if that if one part of it's closing i think that has implications for whether people uh when they're looking at their enterprise mix as a producer you know it it sometimes gets to the stage where it just becomes too difficult to continue to operate and and say for a mixed farmer in WA that's you know growing wheat and canola and having a few sheep run around as well, they might just say, you know what, well, it's just too hard to find shearers. It's too, it's too much of a risk in terms of price risk with regards to the, the volatility in price and the, and the potential for discounted pricing. Um, I'm just going to get rid of the sheep, right? And, and I'm just going to worry, worry about the cropping side or, or, I'll, or I'll switch from sheep to cattle, you know? Um, I think that's a risk there as well. So so that's kind of you know the concerns I've got around that space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think well, coming from a farm in Victoria and having lived in Western Australia for a few years now, it certainly is a, a bit of a the theme, you know, like cropping a lot easier than, than sheep. And so I think we might have to get you back on, Matt, um, especially once the direction of the new government becomes more clear, we, we can talk more about that but I think it would be a huge missed opportunity if someone of your caliber comes on to this podcast and I I don't talk about the current concerns in biosecurity that we have at the moment lumpy skin foot and mouth disease um, in our neighbouring countries what does that mean for us
1: yeah that's a a, 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 I'm aware that you've probably got limited time on on the podcast but that that could potentially be a whole podcast Um, in a, in a nutshell though. You know, we, we, we had, we also prior to lumpy skin and foot and mouth, we don't forget we had African swine fever that was on our doorstep as well, but it was actually, ironically, it was COVID and and the reduction in, in kind of air travel of people coming into the country, bringing product with them that might've had ASF in it um, that kind of allowed us to, to evade some of that um, risk. Because there was product that was seized at the border that had um, ASF in the product. Um, But, you know, because of that reduction in air travel through COVID and we weren't getting hardly anyone coming through as tourists, um, those products weren't getting in that way. Um, so we dodged a bit of a bullet there but yeah you're right we've got lumpy skin disease and um, foot and mouth disease just on our border now and with the air travel kind of opening up again now in a post-covid world where we are getting people coming through more frequently um, there is a there is a fair risk that we could see it uh, penetrate into the country Um, they're both they're both problematic um, diseases in their own right but I think um from a perspective of of the the the, the, the fmd is probably the bigger concern for me from a from the perspective of um you know if that was to get in that could have significant impacts particularly if it was if it got in and it was undetected for a period of time and, and managed to get reasonably widespread around the country or into you know some of the um the, the population of of, of uh, wild species you whether they're you know wild cattle in in the north or Buffalo or or the wild pig population um, that it become endemic to the country and be incredibly hard to get rid of, and that would have massive implications for our um, our trade uh, into other countries and 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 I mean Australia, you know, has a such a reputation for clean, green, you know, um, product that's that's free of disease um, of, the, of this nature. Um, you know, there would be some significant impacts to our to our export markets, and a significant amount of renegotiation in terms of getting access again back. And and there would have, you know, I think also impacts upon, um, you know, volumes and price premiums that we're able to achieve in some markets. Um, that would be that would be definitely, you know, questionable for a period of time. And and obviously, depending upon the. The breadth of the spread of the virus, um, you know, the, the cost to the sector could be. I've seen, I've seen quotes as high as 100 billion from cattle farmers. Ca- sorry, Cattle Council Australia was saying um, that it could be as high as that if it was a widespread and and a difficult. Um, a difficult disease like FMD to eradicate, it, it would change the dynamic of it, the way in which we operate, I think, from an export perspective, which, you know, which is nowadays 70 to 75 percent of our product is being exported. So, you know, we've, we've got to as much as we can hold on to that to that reputation of, um, of clean green and, 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 and not not having diseases like FMD, you know, lumpy skin disease or ASF in the country.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly think that there are exponential impacts, both short and long-term, um, and particularly for our reputation in export markets as well. Matt, we've, we've talked a lot about threats and risk today, and it's been fantastic to get your insights. Are there any opportunities in agriculture going forward? Like what, what comes to mind when we say opportunity?
1: Absolutely there is. Um, I think uh, we, you know if you're talking in terms of the beef um, scenario, uh, I think, like I mentioned before about, you know, we, we have seen a, a growth in the feedlot sector in terms of, you know, over the last two decades or so, we've gone from about 25% of our, our turnoff was was grain finished and now it's about 50%, so it's about half-half. But that means that we're still, if you compare us to the likes of um, the US, which is a, you know, big, a big kind of player globally, we're very much still, a, you know, we've got a lot of grass-fed finishing systems. So we're in a, a, neat, a neat position from the beef space that we actually can target. The traditional premium markets, which are the grain-fed into kind of North Asia, into Japan and South Korea, that kind of heavily intra, intra fat marbling type markets that like the grain-fed product. But also, there's an emerging market within parts of like the US and Europe, and 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 in those kind of um you know high income countries that are that are western uh, western kind of style countries where um there's been a real kind of growth in um red meat that's sourced sustainably and and the grass-fed picture for, for beef and particularly when you start combining it with you know that regenerative style of agriculture it, it suits very well with those with grazing animals like beef or sheep or lambs or goats um, there's a real there's, and and, and combine it with australia's reputation for you know kind of environment and green quality products we've got a real potential global niche there to be able to um to, you know, to, to access that market and say we, we've got, you know, we can we can go into the the traditional premium grain-fed side, whether it's a Wagyu type animal or just a, an Angus grain-fed animal. But we can also, um, you know, look to, to to go into these kind of more um, developing, emerging kind of trend markets where it's people that want to want to eat beef or red meat, but they want to do it in as sustainable fashion as possible. And, and so, you know, we have got the the um, the kind of um, production methods within Australia to be able to pretty much target both those markets, which isn't, which isn't necessarily an opportunity for all of the players in the global beef space. And, and I think from a sheep perspective, that, that also extends on, you know, that uh, if you look at the global sheep um, market in terms of exports, you know, Australia and New Zealand dominate that export market. We're, between the two of us on any given year, we're pretty much about 70% of the exports of sheep meat globally comes from either australia or new zealand and and more recently australia has been the more dominant force in that so we're about 40 percent of global exports and new zealand's closer to 30 percent um, and that's been growing new zealand used to be the dominant one but over time they've actually been focusing more towards um beef and dairy and that and at the expense of sheep meat so you know australia has been able to kind of capture that that control of that market share to a degree and i think the opportunities in that space again are a pretty advantageous for the producer, but both in terms of the fact that there's really only those one other competitor to us, but also from a from a sustainable perspective, the the, the sheep meat product is actually probably you know to a degree they have a lot of footprint ecologically and sustainably than, than cattle um and so you know the narrative around sheep whether it's the product of wool being a natural fiber and and recyclable and sustainable whether it's the meat itself you know there's a really good um narrative around that product it's you know and it's it's a it's a it's a you know fabulously tasting product um there are markets like japan and the u.s where it's still it's still considered a pretty niche market. So there's a lot of growth opportunity in those markets that are high-end, high value markets, but it's also a lot of growth opportunity into places into Southeast Asia and China, into the mutton market. So, and now we've got this, you know, this, this emerging free trade agreement with India. That's another huge kind of market for us to be able to deliver um, you know, sheep meat products across across the kind of spectrum. So we can target the the, the kind of you know those that would be looking more for that mutton kind of lower priced end, or or those consumers. There's enough wealthy consumers in India that would also be interested in the higher end kind of fine dining lamb experience. So you know I think there's a real lot of opportunity in red meat, um, whether it's you know beef or, or or sheep meat, or indeed even goats.
0: Yeah, thanks Matt. I think that's a really apt way to to wrap things up in that we do have a really great narrative, and if we can navigate some of these you know, biosecurity threats and the, and the political landscape, we do have a really um, bright future in agriculture. So thank you so much for not only jumping on board the, the podcast, but everything you do and, and sharing your insights. I think that's
1: really invaluable. No problems, Miller It's been great chatting.
0: And as always, a huge thank you to our audience for listening. Matt is obviously a wealth of knowledge. So if you do want to follow him, he's on Twitter at meet underscore watcher. And at TE Markets, and as always, follow the Livestock Collective and Livestock Leaders wherever platforms you're active on. Thanks, guys. Yeah.